You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of Genesis. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be continuing our study in this chapter. This series we've called Sin and Redemption, and we've been talking particularly in chapter 3 about temptation and how it works in our lives. And uh, tonight we're going to get into the third part where we're going to talk about self-deception. We talked about deception last week. But if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read the passage, verse 6 of chapter 3? We're just going to look at that one verse tonight. And the text reads this way. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask as we look to Your Word tonight that Your Holy Spirit would uh, help us to understand and apply insights to our own lives to help us. There's certainly not one of us who doesn't know the reality of temptation and, and has not experienced and even suffered the consequence of sin in our own lives. The whole message of Your redemption is that we were lost, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And you came and redeemed us, forgave us. We pray, Lord, though, that even though we know that we are sinners and Your grace is available to us, we want to understand how to resist temptation and not allow it to bring more heartache and pain into our lives. So God, give us grace, give us wisdom, give us insight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I wanted to begin this evening uh, by taking a few minutes to kind of review where, we're are, where we've been and where we're going so that um, we can keep a flow going. If you recall, three weeks ago when I began, I, I started by asking the question, what's wrong, more particular, what's wrong with the world in which we live? As I was telling my staff this last week, I said, you know, it's kind of like we're between a rock and a hard place. Uh, the rock is Jesus and the hard place is the world we live in. And we're being squeezed between those things on a regular basis. And part of the challenge, I think, for you and me is to embrace the rock in the midst of the hardships that we face in our world. Uh, there is something in that, that it is those difficulties that often calls us, causes us to draw near to God. And for that reason, God often allows it to happen. But the bigger issue of what's wrong with the world is simply the three-letter word, three word, sin. Uh, but we often don't recognize, as we talked about that first week, is that sin didn't begin with Adam and Eve. They were simply the first victims of sin, but it actually originated with Satan. In fact, the name Satan or Satanos in the original literally means the adversary or the enemy. <clears throat> and he is named in the Bible, given all sorts of different descriptive names so that we would understand the nature of his character, the way he behaves. As I was going through it, I was just writing down different names I could find in the Scriptures. For example, the devil or the diabolos in the original means a, the slander, the accuser, the one who brings a bad report about you to God. Or Lucifer, which is the light bearer. Um, the, he's called the enemy, the destroyer, the prince of devils, the prince, prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the wicked one, the old dragon, the old serpent, the, the uh, great red dragon, and so forth. But the role that he plays in this particular passage is that of being the tempter and the deceiver. 
Those are the terms that describe this moment where he comes and he tempts and he tempts through the process of deception. In fact, in verse 13 of this chapter, which we won't get to tonight, but Eve's explanation, her excuse to God for having transgressed His command, was he, she simply says, the serpent deceived me. Um, and uh, part of what I want to really look at is that even though that's true, there's a degree of self-deception in her being deceived, that she bears a responsibility for allowing it to happen, as do you and I. We're reminded of uh, James who made that comment. He said, no man is tempted by God, but he's tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and his own desires. That, you know, that Satan doesn't tempt you with something you couldn't stand. He tempts you with something that looks alluring, and that's why we often talk about the idea that the devil comes and he deceives us by using lures. He, and the irony is that he doesn't have to come up with a new lure. He has effective lures that have worked with Adam, and they work with every one of us ever since. The same dynamics are operative, and that's what we're going to do tonight is kind of unpack a little bit of those dynamics. But what we saw last week was that he begins always by inserting doubt about God. When he says, did God really say? This idea of getting us to begin to question the meaning and the purpose and the integrity of God. Those kind of things can blur together because sometimes we can say, well, maybe I don't understand what God said or maybe I misinterpreted what He said. But the fact of the matter is, it puts me in a place where when I think about what God says, there's a question mark. Is His truth, many people will say today, relevant to our modern age? which is ironic because every age has considered themselves to be part of the modern age and has always asked the same question, is it relevant in our modern age? We look back on their modern age and say, you were in the Stone Age, but in their mind, they're in the modern age, and therefore they act as if the dynamics are different, but they're not. And it always begins, and we'll see some examples of that as we get into it further, but he always begins with this doubting. Did God really say? Can you really rely upon and trust the truthfulness, the reliability of God? And when you think about things that you struggle with, temptations you've dealt with, hasn't that been a key ingredient in the process? Hasn't it often begun with you asking the question, well, I know what God says, but if I do what God says that could have these negative ramifications. And what's implied in that kind of thinking is that somehow God finds pleasure in sending you down the wrong road. That somehow God says, don't do this. He, he creates what we call taboos because He either doesn't want us to have fun, He doesn't want us to be happy, or doesn't want us to be fulfilled. And that's part of the process because He starts with putting this doubt into our mind. Can I trust what God has said? Can I trust His Word? And then a minute we begin to reflect upon it, as we saw last week, he immediately follows with a denial. He basically boldly and bluntly asserts that what God said isn't true because he says, did God really say you'll die? And she said, well, yeah, he said very clearly we'll die. You won't die. You will not die. That's not going to happen. And immediately that entertaining of that question mark about God opens the door to us reacting in a way that simply says, God's probably not telling me the truth, at least not the whole truth. And so he concludes, though, thirdly, with a denunciation. So he starts with a doubt, he inserts a denial, and then comes the denunciation of God Himself. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what's implied in that statement is, is really quite a bit, but basically, not only is he saying that God can't be trusted, but he says God's very nature can't be trusted. He, he doesn't have integrity. It's almost where we begin to view God as being as petty 
and peevish as we are. And essentially, when you look at religious systems around the world, aren't they always based on somebody's view of God being in some way like we are? Idolatry is certainly like that. We make images or idols to look like what? They look like things that are familiar and part of our world. But the simple thing, but also we find that when people get into even deeply philosophical concepts about God and religious, they're always crafting something that ultimately is something that's conceptually acceptable to them. In short, what they're often saying is, if I were God, this is how I would run the world. And then they create a religion based upon the idea that if I were God. And then they wonder why it doesn't work. Let me give you a hint. You're not God. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are His thoughts and His ways above your ways, Scripture says. And so as a result, people end up in some pretty difficult situations. But the basic idea that we often have is somehow God is holding out on me. I remember before I was a Christian, I, it wasn't that I didn't believe that the Bible was true or that God, Jesus wasn't God and all the rest of that. It's just I thought it would be such a bummer of a life. I remember as a little kid having this conversation, my brother and I having this conversation that let's just live our lives and have fun, and right before we die, we'll ask Jesus into our heart and go to heaven, the best of both worlds. And it holds in this concept that a life separated from God, a life lived in disobedience to God, is somehow a fulfilling and satisfying God life. The idea that I want to die young and make a good-looking corpse is the kind of, or I want to go to hell where all my friends are, not realizing that the biblical description of hell is a place where your friends may be there, but you're not going to enjoy their company. <laughs> you're going to be there all by yourself. That's part of the hellishness of hell, the isolation of it. But we get into this kind of thinking about God, and that's where temptation becomes such a powerful draw in us and why it pulls us, because what we desire, we think we can attain by disregarding what God says. And again, I think it's so important to understand that God's laws and God's ways aren't simply just taboos that He's put in place, but rather they're life-saving guidelines. They're things that says if you do these things, your life will be blessed and your life will prosper. You ignore them. You do so to your own harm and your own hurt. So what comes next in this process is probably one of the most unrecognized dynamics of temptation, or at least one we don't like to own, because we would like to say with Eve, well, the serpent deceived me. That's kind of like saying the devil made me do it. But the truth of the matter is, it's wholly in operation of the dynamic of self-deception, and that's really what I want to talk about today, self-deception. How does this work? And it's, it, it, when you begin to break it down, it's fairly simple. In fact, um, the Apostle John gave us really the, the, the outline for how self-deception works. He says in 1 John 2.16, he says, everything in the world, the word cosmos or for world there refers to the operative principles, not just the physical world, but the way the universe or the world that we live in operates. Everything that is operationally taking place in our world, and then he lists them, the cravings of sinful man. Number two, the lust of his eyes. And number three, the boasting of what he do, has and does, that these things do not come from the Father, he says, but these come from the world system that we're all part of, the culture that's influencing and affecting us. So that cultures vary in their symbols, but in their basic drives and motivation, every culture is ultimately the same. 
I discovered this in an interesting way because over the years I found myself <clears throat> being asked to speak in various countries. We do mission trips and so forth. But because I had written this book on marriage in America, uh, and some of them have translated it into other languages, uh, when I would go to places like even India, where it's a very different culture than ours, they would want me to speak to them on the concepts of marriage. And so I began sharing <laughs> what I saw, and, I, and it was interesting because even though their culture was so far removed from ours, as I was talking about the basic things that we struggle with, everybody's nodding their head in agreement. Every woman identifies with the things that my wife has to live with. Every man identifies with the things that I think I have to live with. And those are the realities because we have basically the same human drives and person characteristics. So that when we talk about things like what causes temptation to become so uh, powerful in our life, it's because everybody since Adam up until the present time still has the same issues and struggles with these three things. I think the Amplified does a good job of what it says it does. It amplifies. I like of all the various translations because there are a number of ways that people render them. And I'll be quite honest, some of the paraphrases in trying to paraphrase it I think completely missed the meaning, and that's the danger of a paraphrase. But the Amplified comes, does a good job. It says, number one, it says, it says these are the cravings for sensual gratification. The first thing is that we have a craving for sensual gratification, and I want to kind of expand on that in a moment. But secondly, he said we're greedy, we have greedy longings of our own mind. And thirdly, there's an assurance in one's own resources or in the stability of earthly things. For simplicity, I, I broke them down into three, I think, easily digestible categories. What we have is, first of all, we have appetites. Secondly, we have ambitions. And thirdly, we have autonomy or a desire for it. I mean, I think it's very important to point out that God created us with all of these three things. And remember, everything that God created was good. In other words, I'm saying to you that having a bit, an appetite is not a bad thing. Having ambition is not a bad thing. And, and having a desire for a degree of autonomy is also a good thing. There's nothing wrong, per se, with having an appetite because it certainly, when we talk about food, moves us to nourish ourselves. I mean, if you think about it, if food didn't have a pleasurable aspect about it, we would probably see it as one of the most odious tasks of our day. I mean, you think about it, I, I, when my mother was dying of cancer, she lost her ability to taste anything, and eating for her was, became a burden. She just didn't, it's just chewing up stuff inside of your mouth, and you try to convince them, well, you need the nourishment, you need to eat it, but there was no drive, there's no appetite. So appetite is not a bad thing. The fact that, that you came in, and I'm sorry we ran out of pizza tonight, we didn't... This keeps on growing in here, so we're, ha we're having to keep on catching up, and I apologize if you didn't get any, and I'm talking about appetite, and you're probably thinking, he's torturing me. But, you know, when I, when I look at that pizza, and suddenly I, it, it, there's all these taste buds and smells and, and, and memories of pizza's past, and all these things begin to congregate inside of me, and there's a stirring, and my digestive juices start flowing, and my mouth starts salivating, and I yearn to eat that and partake of it, that is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's something that God created so that we would eat. And if we didn't, we, as I said, we would neglect eating. 
Uh, but the tasteful pleasures of life, things, the tasteful pleasures of food, the tasteful pleasure of sex, the tasteful pleasure of beholding beauty, the tasteful pleasure of, of hugs and back rubs are gifts from God. Now, you know, the other day my daughter was scratching my back and it felt so good. I just wanted to freeze in that moment. You know, it's like, ah, oh, yes, oh, that's, it's so good. It's like a great massage. And sometimes you think, well, I'm enjoying it too much. Many times Christians get that in their mind. Well, this feels good, so it's got to be bad. No, good feelings, pleasurable responses are something that God created, and they do develop an appetite in us to want certain things. Similarly, when we talk about ambition, it's, it's mo- ambition that motivates us to be creative and to me- want to make and to build things, uh, to accomplish goals, to find enjoyment in our labors. Only depressed people are people who lose their ambition and become sedentary in their life because God created us to be productive. He said, be fruitful and go forth and and care for the planet so that we have to have an ambitious desire. I don't think Adam just got up every morning and says, okay, uh, I'll go and push the cattle over here or push them over. I mean, I'm sure he was thinking all the time of how can I get more milk out of this cow? I mean, it's just just how the human brain is created by God to function. We want to move things on and create the world around us. And there's kind of a crazy idea, philosophy, theology circulating in the world today that somehow that's regressive and we need to go back to a more primitive state of being. And yet, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, be fruitful. You know, when we hear saying, we can't, you know, we can't, don't produce enough food to support the earth's population, you know, and by 2030, it'll be 8.5 billion people and they'll be starving. But you know, they've been saying that for the last several billions. I mean, back in 1837, there was a guy who figured it all out. He said by, by the year 1900, all the world would be starving to death. There was a guy in 1968, a guy named Paul Ehrlich, and he wrote a book called The Population Bomb, and he said by 1980, half the world is going to die by starvation. In his case, that should have been true because what he said was absolutely false, and yet the population has grown so many more times beyond that, and it wasn't true, and yet he's still viewed as an authority around the world. The UN's agenda for 2030 basically states that we have to find a way to reduce the world's population down to 2.5 million people because it's called sustainable development. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. That's for January. (laughs) But to have a drive to want to do something with your life, to to create things and to make things and accomplish things is, is something, again, that God built into us. And then thirdly, the idea of autonomy. It's what appels us to not be a burden on other people. In fact, in Galatians 6, 5, Paul said, let every man bear his own burden to care for his own responsibility. And and so this idea where where we are self-sufficient or at least enough to not be a burden on others is part of how God created us and really brought us into an idea of being part of a community. So having an appetite or being ambitious or, or being a, a autonomous to some degree is, is not necessarily a negative thing. Unfortunately, though, as I said, many Christians think that it is a bad thing. And they begin to, you know, basically fight against their own wiring and create a lot of internal chaos and conflict and confusion. But it, it's what sin did to, to those things 
that is the problem. What sin, when it entered it, it turned the virtues into vices by perverting their focus. And that the man became, shifted his focus from being pleasuring to God to pleasuring himself. And that's really where things become corrupt. Because at that point, selfishness turned appetites into gluttony. The idea of just having more and having more, it doesn't matter what it is. But any kind of pleasure that we experience, we just want to have it more and more of it with greater and greater intensity. But secondly, it takes our ambitions and it turns it into conquest. It's not enough to do the best that I can do and find pleasure and joy in my work, but I have to do better than everybody. I have to compete. I have to strive to get above and beyond. I can't be just wealthy. I have to be rich beyond Croesus's dreams. And we just find that people become driven. And then when we look, talk about autonomy, what selfishness does is it turns it into rebellion against all authority. You can't tell me what to do. That I'm independent both from God and from everyone else. And the idea is there are no limits. There, there are no obligations. There's no accountability. And it's ultimately a rejection of our ultimate dependence upon God. The idea that somehow I don't need God. I can do it myself. I can handle it. So if we begin to understand this, this triad of, of drives that live inside of us, we can begin to look at what Eve did and see that she really does follow this pattern in, in this verse that we read. And it all began because the moment she began to entertain the thought that God could not be trusted, that His Word was not absolute and reliable, and that He was holding back from them that which was in their best interest, that's when healthy things became toxic. And that's the sad realities. Healthy things can become toxic. Instantly, Eve viewed the fruit from a different point of view. It wasn't the first time she'd seen the tree. She knew it was there. She saw the fruit, and God had said very clear to her, don't touch it, it's death. And with that image in her mind, she saw the fruit but was not attracted to it. And I would suggest to you that you are exactly the same way. There are things in your life that you have never been tempted to touch because somehow it was planted in your brain, that's, a, that's death. <laughs> There's nothing good that can, can come out of that, so I'm just not going to go there. Now, some of us learned that by having not learned it first. <laughs> we, we disregarded that, and we went full speed ahead, and we really got bloodied, and now we step back and go, not going to do that. That's called aging. <laughs> it's maturity, you know. It's a, it's a, <laughs> and I, I speak from personal experience, believe me. <laughs> There's things I see young people doing, and I cringe inside because I know where it's going to lead. I just thought, oh, man, you have no idea where that's going to end up. I know it's fun and games right now, but one day it's going to be something that's going to bring grief into your life beyond what you can imagine. But instead of being uh, deadly, the forbidden fruit in her mind suddenly became highly desirable. She says, it's good. God said, it's death. Now suddenly she's going, no, it's not death. It's actually good. Uh, <laughs> eating deteriorated into craving. She began to have an impassioned, relentless, irresistible yearning for the pleasure of something that is forbidden, which, by the way, is one of those areas that psychologists are trying to really figure out 
I read a number of articles on this day because it was, just came to my mind. What is it attractive about forbidden things? And they don't really understand. I mean, there's a lot of ideas out there. Uh, I, I didn't hear any of them saying, I think it's sin, but nonetheless, <laughs> there is something there. They, I mean, the psychological world, psychiatric world recognizes there's something about the attraction of the thing that is forbidden. Solomon put it this way, he said, stolen waters or stolen un- forbidden pleasures, if you will, are sweet and food eaten in secret is delicious. And then one commentator added, because they are forbidden. There's something about that. Suddenly, this thing that should have been terrifying to her becomes so attractive, she has to have it. The secondly, it tells us that she saw it as being pleasing to the eye, and as such, it was something that needed to be attained, something that needed to be acquired, something that she needed to possess. Instantly, there was a sense of, I'm incomplete without this, that something's missing in my life, and I think it's that right there. And she could only be satisfied, at least in her own mind, by eating the thing that had been forbidden. And then thirdly, she said it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Most specifically, she was told, you'll become like God. And in her mind, becoming like God wasn't limited to knowing good and evil. To be like God was to be sovereign and autonomous, self-sufficient, independent. I make my own rules. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my fate. I am autonomous from God and everyone else. You see, interestingly, this is the same approach that Lucifer or Satan, the devil, takes with Jesus when he tempts in the wilderness as well. The order is slightly different. But remember what he said in Matthew 4, that first he comes and says, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Well, we're told that he hadn't eaten for 40 days, so there may have been an attractive appeal in that suggestion. Stimulate your appetite. But Jesus' response is the opposite of Eve's. He says, it is written. Where Eve drifted away from God's truth, he clung to it, knowing that who the Father was and knowing that the Father is truth and is reality and is life, and to disregard Him at any degree is death. So therefore, He said, it is written, which is a way of saying it is absolutely true. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you see, in Jesus' response, He gives us an insight into what the temptation was really about. It's this idea that if I can satiate my senses, if I can fulfill my appetites, then I will experience the fullness of life. And Jesus said, the Father has already declared that is not true. The fulfillment doesn't come with simply satiating an appetite. It comes from experiencing fellowship with God. But secondly, he tempts him with the idea of autonomy where it says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and then they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, the idea of autonomy is that I don't have to listen to what God says, that I can disregard. And the idea of testing God is the idea that somehow God can be tested. You know, the only point is that if you try to test God, you'll flunk the test every time. 
We're told by Jesus, pray, Lord, lead me not into testing. <laughs> and he's not just talking about driver's tests. He's lead me not into testing because I know that I will fail. And Jesus said that the arrogance of this, that I am so autonomous that I can just disregard the things that God says, don't do this because I'm independent of those rules. Finally, he talks about ambition in verse 4. Again, it says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The idea of holding out everything that the world had to offer and saying, I own all this and I will give all of this to you if you will just simply worship me. Sadly, the world is filled with people who have made that bargain. I mean, they have sold themselves. They've violated their own conscience. They've violated their own training, their own education. They're, they've violated what they know is right and true in life. And because they, in their mind, again, they are so driven to accomplish something, to possess something, to acquire something, that they just simply blow past all the flashing red lights and warning signs and just grab at it with everything they have. Now, the reason why I think this is so pertinent to us is because I really think it, it, it describes the world that you and I live in and, and the religious system that operates in opposition to God. Because when it's all said and done, you have really two choices religiously. And everybody makes a choice, so don't think you're not religious. You're making a choice one way or another. Even atheism is a form of religious faith because you have faith in one of the most indefensible facts <laughs> in the world, that there's no God. It, it, atheism has no way of explaining so much more than people of faith can explain. But the simple fact is that there is a religious system that people subscribe to, and what that religious system does outside of Christ is, number one, it either exalts the appetite, telling us that fulfilling your appetite is the ultimate purpose in life, or it, it basically tells us that... Uh, the, and essentially saying to us that the real design of life is that you be happy, to please oneself, to be true to yourself. And I always love that saying, people saying, well, you just have to be true to yourself. You know what the problem with being true to yourself is? Self is never true. In fact, the Bible tells us that in Jeremiah 17, he says, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. I mean, you know, I would like to say that I really always know where I'm coming from, but there's so many times where I have to sit back and go, I'm not sure what's going on inside of my head right now. There are so many times where I have to realize as I'm reading God's Word that where it says truth lies and where my mind is going at that moment are in two different places. It's a, it's a puzzling dynamic, and yet, as the songwriter said, we are prone to wander. But what this false religion says basically is that fulfilling or satisfying your appetite is really the key to living your life. And a lot of people are living on that level. When you ultimately go to the end where you see people who are addicted to all sorts of harmful and toxic substances, you have to understand that that began with a belief that the pursuit of things that would make them happy, the things that would bring them pleasure, was the answer to life. 
I mean, the whole reason that I started using drugs as a, as a teenager was because I was told that if I smoked this thing, it would make me feel good and it would open up all the avenues of my mind and, and it would really uh, answer the hard questions of life. And so when that didn't do it, I didn't just stop there. Then I had to take something else and then I tried something else and I tried something else. And you find yourself on this gateway, this journey of gateways that leads you down this path, but it all has at its source the same idea that somehow if I just do this, it's going to make me happy. It's going to fulfill me and I'm going to be satisfied and I'll just live my life satiating myself with whatever that might be. But the ultimate problem is, as the writers, Paul said to the Romans, he said, there's no one who seeks God, there's no one who does good, not even one. Their tongues practice deceit, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The way of peace they do not know, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And over time, even the most delectable and the most desirable pleasures lose their allure, leaving the soul empty and yearning for more. And people get on that treadmill of just simply increasing the dosage of what happens to be the addictive thing that they're into, whether it be drugs or alcohol or sex or anger or hatred or violence. It's, it's an, they're all different kinds of the same thing that it addictively draws you deeper and deeper and deeper until it destroys your life. So the religion of this world exalts the appetites, but it also exalts ambition. It tells us that our worth is measured by what we produce and that we are measured in value by the stuff that we acquire. So the more you acquire, the more valuable you become. Yet most of us quite honestly, we'll never produce enough either to satisfy ourselves or to impress anybody else. We're going to be disappointed. It's never enough. It's kind of like athletics. I was thinking today about a team or an athlete who may achieve a championship, say the, say the Super Bowl in 2013, and they achieve this and all the accolades and the praise and all the wonder comes in, but it doesn't last. And as the new season starts again, we're starting all over again, and the journey starts again. And even those retired athletes who accomplished great things look back at yearning and saying, how can I recapture that moment, that moment when I was on top? And I feel sorry for some great athletes. What do you do when you're Michael Jordan? What will ever be like? the final game, you know, of the championship? What, what will ever be like that moment where you were the, the, at the best of what you'd ever be, but you will never be that again? And suddenly there's this feeling of emptiness. Paul described it in 2 Timothy, talking about people who would always be learning. One version put it interesting, always led captive by everlasting changing impulses but never able to basically grasp the truth, never being able to just really sit and face the truth. Because the problem is, in order to get hold of the truth, I have to let go of what I'm holding on to. And it's that space between holding and letting go and grasping the new that is the terrifying point. What if I let go of it and it's not there? I know for me, before I was a Christian, the thought was, okay, if I 
turn to Jesus and give him my life, what if he lets me down? What if he's not really real and he's not really there? What, what do I have left then? And it was that thought of being out there and having taken this step of faith and being disappointed that terrified me and made it so difficult just simply to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Now, part of the dynamic is that for some reason I understood you're either all in or you're not. <laughs> Many people, you know, let's say, well, I, I accepted Christ in my life. I just don't let it influence me, you know, because they're never all in. They don't understand, and, and so they never in, experience the blessing and the joy and the reward because they're never all in. And so they, they just kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like putting on your swimming suit and going down to the beach and then standing there and dipping your toe in the water and saying, well, I don't, I don't see what's so great about all of this. No, it's being immersed in it that's great. It's being grabbed by the wave and driven into the coral. No, it's... It <laughs> I swallowed more sand water, salt water and sand in my life than I'd really like to think about. But the, the thing is, that it's this idea that somehow if I release my grasp and my grip, that I'll miss out. And maybe if I squeeze it a little harder and hang on to it a little longer, it will suddenly become, it, suddenly Cinderella will become the princess. Glass slippers are real. But they never are. We live in a world of deterioration. You know, it, it's a world that's going from a state of order to disorder. In very real ways, your life in terms of your worldly possessions and place in this world are going to be like that. It's not going to be better and better and better every day in terms of your physical life. It's going to be, get more difficult and harder and more challenging. I mean, I don't mean to ruin everybody's evening, but... But then there's also the way the world exalts the idea of autonomy. Mark Sayer, who's... A, somebody I'm into reading right now. Um, he's written a couple of really great books. But he, in his book called The Disappearing Church, uh, talks about this new world religion. He says, this new religion could be detected in an increasing obsession with the self, with personal development and the preference of spiritual over, spirituality over religion and with therapy over communion with a transcendent God. It's the elevation of self above God. It propagates its own creed, one which believes in no creed except the creed of self. And the ultimate authority is itself. That is the growing philosophical point of view. So that instead of, you know, getting into a Bible study and being part of a discipleship group, of course, you guys are accepted because you're here, so... But many people are just chasing one seminar, one self-improvement course. In fact, even the church is more and more beginning to use the language and even the techniques of the world in order to help people discover themselves and, and find their gifting and their special place in the universe, and on and on it goes. It's like people who have these trans-soul migration things where they go into meditation and they regress into their previous lives. And I'm always fascinated by that because I'm still waiting to meet the guy who said, you know, I went back into my previous life and I found out that I was a serial killer and nobody liked me and I, and, and I died young because I was a bad guy. No, everybody's 
you know, I was Cleopatra, and that's just the guys. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like how many Cleopatras were there? <laughs> she did have multiple personalities, apparently, because there's lots of people who want to be, but it's this idea that somehow I, I can become autonomous. I can discover this dimension of myself that's above and beyond everything else, and yet it's a search into the fantasy world. Because what are the consequences of it? Well, we're going to get into that next week. That's next week's message. What happens as a consequence of sin? What happens in living your life this way? Well, Sayer puts it this way. He says, the collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family, the fraying of the social bonds, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interest demands something larger, the loss of trust in public institutions, the buildup of debt whose burden will fall in future generations, the failure of shared morality to lift us out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, and relativism. We know these things, yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. And you suddenly look at a world or a society, even like our own, that all of us look at and go, this thing is falling apart. It is riding in the proverbial basket, and, <laughs> and it's going to H-E-L double hockey sticks. We all kind of we recognize it. It's, it's not moving in the direction. When we hear about what happened in, in Las Vegas, we're, we're, we're grieved and wounded collectively, and yet we feel like we have no way of really changing this because even though we find, you know, 58 people's lives were needlessly ended in in a horrible way, and yet if we lift up our eyes and look around us, it's so much worse than that. It's so much worse than that. It's it's the 4,000 people that were murdered in Chicago over the last six years. (laughs) It's, I think, even more worse. It's, It's kind of the perception that we miss. It's the fact that today, just today, 910 people lost their lives in a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. 900 babies are killed every single day, 365 days out of the year. But nobody seems to be troubled by that. But this is the world we live in. And then we sit back and say, well, our population isn't growing fast enough to support a growing economy. Well, it could be that if you kill off 60 million of your potential citizens before they even have a chance to leave the womb, that somehow that isn't related. It's amazing because one of the things that Paul said about the end times is people profess themselves to be wise and they're total fools. And as I listen to the dialogue and the conversation, you watch the news channels and quite honestly, I've gotten the point that's all I can take so I can take some more. But the simple fact is you realize they're talking in circles about things because they're always trying to find a way to feed their appetite, to finding a way to, to, to fulfill an ambition and ultimately to be autonomous from God. And yet it's that declaration of our independence from God that has put us in the place where we're at. Because the thing that holds a group of people together is a common set of values As a nation, we used to have a common set of values. We don't have them anymore. In fact, we live in almost a valueless society, and then we wonder why the suicide rate amongst teenagers has skyrocketed to be the second cause of death for teenagers today is suicide, dying by their own hands. 
And we don't like to talk about that, but it's the reality. And we sit there and say, why is this happening? Why is there this unbelievable epidemic of opioid addictions? So that in places even like in our, our sacred uh, Holy Family uh, um, Hospital with their emergency room just down the road, 50% of the people that are coming in there are people who have OD'd on some opiate drug. Kirkland, where you can't buy a house for under a million dollars, where you, if you don't make a half a million dollars a year, you're kind of just getting by, 80% of the people coming into their emergency rooms are coming for opioid addictions and overdoses. And you sit there and go, well, why is this? And I'm convinced it's simply we have tried to declare that we are autonomous from God, that we can live our lives without really paying attention, that instead of saying like Jesus, uh-uh, Satan, it is written, we're going, well, maybe it is all right to be gay. Maybe it is all right same-sex marriage. Maybe it is all right to live together out of a covenant of marriage. Maybe it is, and we start going through all these things. We say, maybe it's okay, maybe it's okay. And then we wonder, why, is our life, why are our lives so screwed up? Why is our culture falling apart? Why is this society collapsing? Because we've declared that we can live autonomous, dis disconnected from God's law, as if God's law can't penetrate my law. And I just would ask the question, how's that working for you? Yeah. I just know in, in, from my own personal life that every time I've ever disregarded God's law, whether out of ignorance or intention, <clears throat> the chickens come home to roost. <laughs> it always ends up being far different than I might have imagined it to be. And those kind of experiences in life drive you to this place where the, you're between the rock and the hard place, and as you're being crushed by that, by that circumstance, you sit there and fall to your knees and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I'm ready to obey you in regard to whatever your will is. My wife and I were having this wonderful conversation where she was just sharing with me that this one area of her life where she's really trying to attitudinally come to this place where she's consistently surrendered to God. And she was talking about the battle, the struggle, the prayer, the earnestness, the, the reading, the seeking of God. God, I want victory in this area of my life. And I thought, you know, that's the heart of somebody who is recognizing that they're not autonomous. But when we go through life basically saying, well, you know, the way I see it, really not only is nobody really interested in how you see it, but you're just setting yourself up. It always comes back to what is written. What did God say is the truth? You know, I, I used to do a lot of apologetic research, you know, on proving to people that the Bible's God's Word. And I found that no matter how many proofs and arguments I could come up with, it was never the thing that compelled people. And what I found really changed people's attitude about the Bible is I said, you know what? Try it and you'll find it's true. Because the reason I know this is God's Word is because as if I followed it, it transformed my life. <laughs> it's just that simple. It, it, you, you, at the end of the day, does it work? Someone once said, that's the two questions that every non-Christian has. Is it true, and does it work? Today, they don't care about truth because they're like Pilate. They're not sure there is such a thing as truth. They just want to know, is there something out there that actually works? 
I love the man who got in the discussion with the guys at work, and they were talking about how that, well, religion and Christianity and Judaism and all this stuff are going on with all this stuff. And he had just become a believer shortly before. And finally, when they acquired, they said, what do you think about it? And he says, well, I'll tell you what happened. At my house, God ta- turned beer into furniture. <laughs> you know, it's that simple reality that suddenly I went from being an absent husband and father to a man who's home with his kids and his wife. I, I went from being a guy who's chasing girls to just seeing the chase in the hearts of my family. It transformed my life. And that's the power of our testimony is the transformed life. How has Jesus changed you? How has He changed you? And you can only answer that in a, in a positive and affirmative way if you have come to a place where you surrender and say, Lord, I hunger and thirst after Your righteousness. That's what my appetite is about. My ambition is to press on to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. My, my identity is not in my independence, it's in my dependence upon you. So when the gentleman said to me one time when I was sharing Christ with me, he says, well, you know, Christianity is just a crutch. I said, oh, no, 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 no. It's more than a crutch. It's the ambulance. It's the gurney. It's the hospital. It's the doctors. It's the whole suite of everything that I need because I am a rolling wreck and without it, I'm dead. No. I admit it. I need God. I need Jesus. I'm toast without Him. And that's the dependence, not independence, but dependence upon God. And that's what Adam and Eve walked away from. And next week, we'll talk about the price they paid for that decision. Father God, I pray that you would um, make this sensible to us, um, because otherwise, we'll ignore it. And I just pray, God, that you would just impress the sense of us and begin to show us how to make these things operative in our lives. These are truths that can govern us. We trust you for that, Lord, as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.